This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As with all scripture, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall I pray for us uh, as we start? Dear Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage and uh, seek to learn from it, that you would uh, teach us, Lord, that you would open our eyes, as the passage itself says, Uh, that we may uh, learn and apply that to our lives. Amen. Well, as you read this passage, it struck me that you can sort of feel Paul's excitement uh, as he writes it. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When you come across people who are excited about something, then you want to know the reason for it. You sort of say to yourself, what's this person getting all excited about? Well, some years ago, uh, I woke up far too early in the morning to find one of my children bouncing around the bedroom with excitement, uh, including bouncing on the bed, which is why I was awake. Uh, Now, at that time... um, this was such a contrast to their normal behaviour, they didn't really do any bouncing in the morning. Uh, it was uh, hard enough to get any speech from them, really. Uh, so you think, what's this all about? What, what's the reason for this? Well, it took me a while to become conscious enough to remember that it was, in fact, Christmas Day. <laughs> and, and that was the reason. Well, thankfully, Paul tells us what he is excited about. By saying, uh, for this reason... Uh, He's pointing us back to the verses that uh, come before this passage. So I'm going to have to recap just briefly. In verses 3 to 14, uh, Paul sets out the incredible plan of God that from the very beginning it was his intention to pour out blessings upon us, the church. That through Christ Jesus, we should receive forgiveness of sins that he has chosen us to be blameless in his sight and that we should, not, we should not only therefore be redeemed but also adopted as his children 
and called to share in a glorious inheritance. That is an incredible list of blessings. That is something to be very excited about. Maybe we don't get anywhere near excited enough. When I was first a Christian, I bought this record. In those days, you could buy records. They were sort of little bits of vinyl and put them on record players. And this record is one called Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins Singers. And I just loved it because it's still do, because of its enthusiasm, its excitement about the fact that they have been, as the record says, washed uh, from their sins. So then, let's look at what Paul says to the small group of young Christians in this large, bustling city of Ephesus. Well, it's uh, not so much what he says, but what he prays, isn't it? Because this is a prayer, and not just for them, I believe. It's a prayer for all who would put their faith in the Lord Jesus. We can apply it to ourselves today. And in his prayer, Paul says, not only that he never stops giving thanks for them, but he prays in verse 17, uh, a saying, he keeps asking for some particular thing. So what we're going to do is look at what it is that he prays for them and for us. Well, having praised God in the preceding verses for having blessed us in Christ, uh, sets out the blessings, He now prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of that blessing. So verse 17, what he prays is that you may know. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Notice there he repeats that you may know twice. It is one thing, of course, to hear words and to recite phrases. It's something altogether to know it. Um, I was over 40 before I first flew in a plane and uh, people kept telling me that when you sat on the runway, you're sitting in this, what did Rob call it, a sort of giant cigar holder. Uh, with these like 100 people, when you sat there and then the engines kicked in, it really pushed you back in your seat. And you think, yes, yes, okay. But then when it actually happens, you think, yes, it does. You know it. But maybe it's more like when you know that someone really cares for you, where it just suddenly dawns on you, you see it, that this person really cares for you. You couldn't really put your finger on any particular one thing, but you just know it. So Paul wants us to know these things. So you could say this is then a prayer for knowledge, a prayer for knowledge. But not just the sort of general sort of knowledge that would win you points on mastermind, but a knowledge of him, of God himself, and the blessings he's given to us. Now to have knowledge of God personally is of course impossible without revelation, unless God reveals it to us. So he prays that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a strange metaphor, isn't it, the eyes of your heart, if you try and picture it. 
But of course, in, by heart, he means the whole inward self. I mean, we do use that term sometimes, the heart of somebody. It's the mind and the emotion. And he prays that we'll be enabled to take this in. And there are three things that he wants particularly that we should know. One is the hope of God's call. Second, the glory of God's inheritance and the greatness of God's power. So we're going to look at those things. First then, the hope of God's call or the hope to which he has called you, as Paul puts it. And when you think about when you became a Christian, you remember it probably as the fact that you called on him to save you, which is right. But of course that is a response, was a response, to his call upon you, wasn't it? And he has called us to something and for something, as the verses three to four set out. This is no random or purposeless call. He has an object in view when he calls you. That is what is meant by the hope of his call. There is then, you could say, an expectation here. We are called to belong to Christ, to holiness. Be holy even as I am holy, he says. Called to be liberated from the judgment of the law by grace, to freedom and to peace. And also, to a greater or lesser extent, we are called to suffer for that calling. So we're called to nothing less than a new life, to know, love and obey Christ, to live in fellowship with him and with each other. Paul prays that we may know that. Later in his letter, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So that's the first thing. Secondly, it's the glory of God's inheritance. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now speaking of this inheritance, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If Paul prays that we should know this hope, then it isn't in the sense that we experience it, not just yet, anyway. Though I do think sometimes that we see or catch glimpses of it. Exactly what it is like is beyond our capacity to imagine. But certain aspects of it are revealed to us. We learn from scripture that we shall see God and his Christ and worship. And in that process we will be transformed. So John in his letter says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him in body and in character, and enjoy perfect fellowship with each other, unencumbered by sin and evil. 
And Paul is saying it is not presumptuous of us to grasp this, to believe that this is our inheritance. But it is in fact to honour God that we should know it. And John says, or goes on to say in his passage, all who have this hope in them purify themselves. So thirdly, he talks of the greatness of God's power, that we may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So we looked at the past, the call, the hope of your call, we looked at the future for the inheritance, and now we look at what God provides in between those two things. I uh, had a go on an electric bike the other day. I don't know whether any of you had. I know there are a couple of people in church who own electric bikes. And, uh, and I loved it. I thought, oh, I've got to get me one of these. It's like you've got bionic legs or something. You feel the power. But it's an interesting analogy in a way because, on this particular bike anyway, you, you feel the power, but you don't feel it until you start pedaling. It's not until you put in some effort. So with the power of God, until you call upon it, you don't feel it. Now Paul concentrates particularly on this aspect, and that's maybe because it's only by God's power, if you think about it, that the other two aspects, the other two blessings, uh, can be possible. It's only possible that the expectation, this call, can be fulfilled in us by God's power only. Only by his power will we be brought safely to our final inheritance in him. Now Paul is convinced about this and he uses strong phrases like the work, working of his mighty strength or the incomparably great power in us who believe. And he gives three uh, events, uh, demonstrations of that power. The resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is enthroned over evil and Jesus' headship of the church. So this is all, if you're trying to follow the notes, is under uh, God's power. There are two powers uh, which mankind cannot control that hold him in bondage, you could say. One of those is death, which no mortal being can avoid, and the second is evil. As fallen human beings, we cannot overcome the evil that is within ourselves let alone anyone else. But God in Christ has conquered both those things and so can rescue us from both. So then, briefly, the three things uh, that um, show his power, particularly that Paul mentions. Genesis 3.19, so this is a resurrection. Genesis 3.19 uh, says that we are but dust and no human power can prevent death or even bring us back from it but God has done what man cannot do in a public display of God's power he has reversed the decay restored Jesus to life raised him to altogether a new life immortal free this is a new dimension of human experience and it is the decisive evidence of God's power Secondly, that he, God, has enthroned Jesus above all uh, evil, in fact, above all authority. He's brought him out of the dominion of death and given him supreme honour and authority at the right hand of God. Now, sometimes 
I'm sure you feel this too. It doesn't feel like that. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Evil has not yet conceded Christ's victory. But we see it in Jesus, supremely in his resurrection and ascension. We also see it, don't we, in the apostles' ministry, in Paul's ministry, despite his sufferings. And Paul knew it and saw it in the Ephesians, where he saw it revealed in their changed lives, the changed lives of ordinary people, their faith in Jesus and their love for the fellow believers, as we witness it today in the lives of others. So thirdly, it is the headship, Christ's headship of the church. Paul reminds us uh, that the church is the body of Christ, but Christ is the head of it, filling the body with powers, with movement, inspires it, gives it life and direction. So these three demonstrations uh, of power belong together. It is because Christ of Christ's resurrection from the dead and enthronement over the power of evil that he has been given headship over the church. The resurrection and ascension were a decisive demonstration of divine power. He who fills the church is also, Paul says, the one who fills the universe. He is not only head of the church, he is the head of all things, as one day will be revealed to all. So this is, to conclude, an impressively broad sweep, this prayer for the church. But as you look back over it, there is one thing that's really clear in Paul's emphasis, and it is the importance of maturing in the Christian faith. He is delighted with the faith uh, of these Christians in Ephesus, but he longs for them to grow in their knowledge of God, just as each one of us should. Because surely we know that Satan would long to see us lose our faith, to tell us we have no calling, to question whether we have any inheritance or doubt the power of God to actually work in us. He will attack the truth, tell us that we have deceived ourselves. So it is important that we seek, as Paul says, to know God better and to know the blessings that we have in him. But how would you expect, then, that Paul's prayer would be answered? Do we pray uh, that God will open our eyes to this truth and then sit back and wait for it to happen? Or do we apply ourselves to read and gain as much knowledge as we possibly can? Well, there is truth in both of those things, those approaches. And what Paul does in these verses is to unite those two things. We in the modern church often uh, separate knowledge and faith. Some regard the two as incompatible, but Paul pulls them together. So notice he prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation by the Holy Spirit may increase their knowledge of God, would enlighten their eyes. But then he points to how God has already revealed his power objectively in Jesus Christ by raising and exalting him. 
So we know and see his power as demonstrated in Jesus, but then we need to lay hold of it by faith for ourselves. Faith needs a firm basis of knowledge to grow, but knowledge is sterile if it does not produce faith. John Stock puts it much better than I can. All our thinking is unproductive without the spirit of truth, yet his enlightenment is not intended to save us the trouble of using our minds. It is precisely as we ponder what God has done in Christ that the Spirit will open our eyes to grasp its implications. Now maybe like me, you are often far too aware of your own human weakness when you lose your temper, when you see within yourself that which you would rather not see or when your faith seems so small. But is our weakness beyond the power of God? Paul prays that you may know the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead and you may know it at work in you who believe. Let me finish by reminding us of another prayer of Paul's which comes just a little later in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.